please, uh, if you wish, that is, in your Bibles to Isaiah in the 12th chapter. We'll be looking at Isaiah 12 again this evening. It's a very brief chapter. I'm reading the six verses that make up Isaiah chapter 12. And in that day thou shalt say, I will give thanks unto thee, O Jehovah, for though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for Jehovah, even Jehovah, is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore with joy shall he draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, Give thanks unto Jehovah. Call upon his name. Declare his doings among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto Jehovah, for he hath done excellent things. Let this be known in all the earth. Cry aloud and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion. For great in the midst of thee is the Holy One of Israel. Let us pray. O Lord our God, I do thank thee tonight for thy providence and in the hymn selections once again, as often it is, very helpful to encourage. Father, thou knowest how often I echo the words of the scriptures and the words of that song of Robert Robinson's, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I have come. O Lord our God, thou hast kept me, thou hast kept this people, thou hast kept this assembly, and will keep it as long as it pleases thee to do so. We ask, Father, that thou once more would be pleased to bless the proclamation of thy word, that thou would guard thy servant from error, that thou would grant that he might, by thy grace, and for thy glory pronounce the word of the Lord, the living God, our Father in heaven, we pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. The first verse of that chapter, Isaiah 12, 1, And in that day thou shalt say, I will give thanks unto thee, O Jehovah. And we looked at that last week, and we're looking at the second half of that verse somewhat tonight. For though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. One writer suggested that a title for these first 12 chapters of Isaiah, now mind you, he's not suggesting a variety of authors, but, but there is a conspicuous break here in the thought when Isaiah has been led to pen a psalm in chapter 12. And so there, there is a section here. I don't know if pericope, pericope can be used to, uh, for 12 chapters, but at any rate, this section, one writer has titled or set the title over it, The Crisis and the Messiah, the crisis and the Messiah. 
This morning we heard some good news, good tidings about the gospel. Of course, sadly we heard some bad news about some bad people that don't preach the true gospel, but nonetheless we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our King. That's the good news. People are asked occasionally for various reasons and under various circumstances, what do you want first, the bad news or the good news? I say that because we heard some good news last week. In that day thou shalt say, I will give thanks unto thee, O Jehovah. And now we have to look at the bad word. I would submit that the gospel contains in a sense, a bad message and a good message. In other words, it contains the, the command to repent. And that's bad news for natural man because he can't do it. Of course, he can't believe either. But he can't repent, nor does he wish to repent. And it's terrible news, and I think that's something along the lines of what Isaiah is going to be dealing with. We ask the question, According to this first verse of chapter 12, for though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. Well, what was Jehovah angry about? What was it that he was angry about? Well, the first chapter of the book, and of course the first chapter, obviously, of this section, we learn what Jehovah was angry about, what brought about God's anger toward his people in the very first chapter of Isaiah's book of his prophecy where we read the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah kings of Judah. He says that this is a vision. Most of the writers submit that this vision has to do with the entire book of Isaiah. It's not like Ezekiel where he starts out with the, he was given a vision and then there's a vision and then there's another vision. And, and the entire book of Isaiah is asserted here by the prophet to be given to him a vision or, or we could say a revelation. It's given to him through God. And we hear it seems immediately the word of Jehovah being spoken, and it's bad news. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Jehovah has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Isn't that something that we see all around us every day virtually? People not even considering the demands of God upon them. The one who created them. The one who has provided all things for them, especially in this land of plenty. The one who has filled their cupboard with food. The one who has filled their automobile with gasoline. The one who has given them the automobile, given them their house, given them all these things. And they think that they got it by their own strength, by their own wisdom. They don't consider who it is that's providing. Ah, sinful nation, he goes on, a people laden with iniquity, 
a seed of evildoers, children that deal corruptly. They have forsaken Jehovah. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are estranged and gone backward. I can't help but continue that thought that this describes our land. Despised and forsaken the living and true God. Why will you still be stricken that you revolt more and more? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and fresh stripes. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devoured in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except Jehovah of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom. We should have been like unto Gomorrah. It seems that he's suggesting, frankly, that we are like Sodom. That we are like Gomorrah. Except for this little remnant. Except that Jehovah of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. And he, and he speaks of the daughter of Zion. I believe that that's a reference for us today of the people of God, the remnant, the church, the true church. I don't pretend that everybody that belongs to a church is a true believer. But that's what Isaiah is talking about is the remnant, the true people of God. And he lays this argument against them. He lays this claim before them. He vents his anger. The question, what was Jehovah angry about? This is what he's angry about. He behaved unto these people, Israel, whom he had chosen to be a people for his own possession, a special people. And he's given them everything that they need, everything that they could desire. And they have forsaken him. They have despised him. It's really unimaginable. And no wonder he was angry. One writer refers to the revelation given Isaiah as a magnificent and grave exhortation. At least, at the very least, it's a magnificent and grave ex exhortation that it was and that it is that it was then and is now. A majestic appeal was striking forth. Does it not appeal to your heart even tonight? We're not totally clean yet. We're guilty of much of this ourselves. By God's grace, we don't stand in the same place as those outside of the remnant that God has established, that he has left unto us. But this is a majestic appeal with striking force. I don't know if you listened to the inaugural address Friday. If you didn't want to, I don't blame you. But nonetheless, it was criticized very highly for being harsh, for being 
harsh and dark. And somebody even called it Hitler-esque. Most of it, I think, was truth. That's the problem that people have with Isaiah, with God speaking through Isaiah these words. That's what makes it a magnificent and a grave exhortation. That's what makes it a majestic appeal with striking force because it's true and it hit home, hits home. If people couldn't handle the truth of that address Friday, how will they ever handle this truth from Isaiah? Well, we learn through Isaiah throughout that they won't listen to it. Their eyes are closed. Their ears are stopped up. They won't handle it. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, but they will not listen. They have not been able to hear. They will not hear because they don't wish to. But we're talking here, and it made me think of the prodigal son. We're talking here about, about mankind and God's own people, Israel, and his, the people today in the world that he has given so much to. And yet they <clears throat> despise him. And they use his name as a curse word. And they make jokes about his son. And they laugh at his people. They despise the living God. And this was, this was in this respect, his son. Israel was a son. And we are his children. All the people of the world are his children by creation. And yet, they say as the prodigal, give me my goods and let me go. Just give me the things I want. I don't need to thank you for it. I don't need to love you. And they go. We read a striking, a startling description of this in Ezekiel 16. And I think that it's so relevant that I can't help but read it unto you. From Ezekiel 16, God talking through this prophet about this very, this very same issue. And he says in 16, and in the third verse, Thus saith the Lord Jehovah unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of the Canaanite. The Amorite was thy father, and thy mother was a Hittite. As for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to cleanse thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. No eye pitied thee to do any of these things unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out into the open field, for that thy person was abhorred in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee, goes on to say, I saw thee weltering in thy blood. I said unto thee, though thou art in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, though thou art in thy blood, live. I caused thee to multiply. And on and on, all the privileges, all the blessings that God showered upon his people, Israel. And yet we read here how they despised him. And he has to charge them with that, despising him. Ah, sinful nation. I have nourished and brought up children, he says, and that's expressly pointed out in Ezekiel 16. And yet 
his people turn on him. They forsake him. Get out of my way. I can do it myself. And I don't want to do it your way. Just like the prodigal said to his father, your rules grind my socks. Give me my inheritance and let me go. Jerusalem's low origin and Jehovah's kindness to her, Ezekiel spoke of, and then her unfaithfulness. And again, is this not a fair representation, a fair portrayal of our nation? And for many, many, many years, this nation has been so blessed and turns its back on the living God. Has this land, even as Israel here, has this land not thumbed its collective nose at God for many years? The ox knows not his owner. The ass knows not his master's crib. What dumb animals God used to portray these people, us, and many, many others many who are even dumber than we are, only because God hasn't given them wisdom at this time. Consider this remnant that we read of in Isaiah. This remnant, when did the remnant begin? What is the remnant? God says he's left unto us a very small remnant. Well, it's very small, and God has left it, has there not always been a remnant, virtually? Was Seth not something of a remnant? Was Noah not something of a remnant in his family? Abraham and the Hebrews, were they not remnants for a long time? The remnant was brought out of Egypt, and the remnant has been maintained by God protected and nourished and defended and guarded all these years. Ever since the beginning, this remnant, ever since, ever since the Lord said to the serpent, her seed will crush your head. The remnant has been protected the remnant has been kept by God. The remnant was preserved. The remnant through which line our Savior came. The line of David, according to God's appointment. You remember, and I've mentioned this before, about wicked Athaliah. When her son, the king, was killed, she went and slew all her very own grandchildren. Grandsons, that is. So that she could be queen. That would have ended it, would have ended the remnant, would have ended the line going to our King, our Lord Jesus. But God didn't allow that to happen, and he saved through the priest Jehoiada and his wife protecting, protecting one of those grandsons who several years later was raised up to be king over Israel, and Athaliah was slain. But God protects and preserves his remnant. 
the remnant of the Jews that followed Christ during his sojourn upon earth to the continuing remnant today until the final day. There will always be a remnant. The true church, the body of Christ Jesus, his members are the seed, not the capital S seed, but the seed or seeds. In this sense, the church is seen to be seen in the Older Testament. It is the remnant. It was, it was never the nation of Israel per se. The remnant came through the nation of Israel, but it wasn't the entire nation of Israel. And it's not the entire church today. It's the seed. Those who have been placed in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Those who, for whom Christ died and poured out his blood at Golgotha. The remnant, the elect of God, having received the promised regeneration. We see this in Jeremiah 31, 31, and Ezekiel 36, 26. Those texts probably ring bells in your, in your heads because they're those new covenant texts, those promises. I will put my law in their inward parts and in their heart will I write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Did you hear that? I will be their God and they shall be my people. Is that not the heart of the covenant? Is that not the heart of the new covenant? I will be their God and they shall be my people. And Ezekiel says similarly, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. These are new covenant promises given to the elect from the elector, capital E, the elector, the one who elected God himself, has chosen these. This is the heart of the covenant. This, this covenant, we might say, is, 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 the, is the heart of the seed, is the idea of this seed that is promised according to covenant. Paul says in Romans eleven five, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There is a remnant according to the election of grace and there always will be until that great day when the bridegroom returns for his remnant, the bride. It is the remnant that shall be saved. Romans 9, 27. It is the remnant, not the raptured. The remnant. I'm not discounting a rapture according to the Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians when the Lord Jesus shall descend with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and take his people to himself. That's the remnant. It's not the church. It's the true church, yes. You understand? The church, the true church is the remnant. It is the remnant that shall be saved. Mediating or meditating on the place of the remnant, one has said, is the mystery of salvation. The place of the remnant. We see, we see by these comparisons that I've just cited, the remnant that shall be saved. The remnant 
Paul's remnant in his language, he refers to as the seed or the remnant. The remnant is the seed. It's interesting, very interesting, that in the, the, the citation that, that Paul cites in that passage is from Isaiah 1.9, except Jehovah of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. And Paul says seed, except God had left unto us a seed. In the Septuagint, that translation, that Greek translation of the Old Testament, they used the word for seed. And Paul evidently was employing the Septuagint when he wrote the book of Romans, at least when he put that passage down. The seed we see here then is indeed, as I've been saying, is the remnant. The remnant is the seed. The seed are those that belong to Christ. All those who are in Christ, they are the remnant. The remnant will be refined. The remnant is being refined. You know, in this first chapter of Isaiah, look what it says in the 25th verse. It says, I will turn my hand upon thee and thoroughly purge away thy dross and will take away all thy tin. I will thoroughly purge away thy dross and will take away all thy sin. That speaks of being refined. It speaks of being smelted, like we could compare that with regeneration and then, and then refining, purging the draw, sanctification. God promises through Isaiah that he is going to preserve this remnant and he's, he's going to bring them through many things, but he's going to preserve them and in doing so, he's going to be refining them, smelting and refining them taking the dross away unto that great day when we rush ahead anachronistically to the idea of the last day when every spot and wrinkle is taken away from the bride of Jesus Christ. I think that Isaiah here in this first chapter, speaking the words God has given him, condemns many things that are practiced today. Formalism, for example, in churches. I think we heard something about that this morning. Nominal believers, you know what nominal means? It means in name only. Nominal believers, nominal Christians, people that take the name of Christ, do not thousands upon thousands in the, in the Bible belt take the name of Christ in vain calling themselves Christians when they don't live as Christians. They don't profess Christ truly. They just take the name. They're simply nominal Christians. There were surely nominal believers to call them something in the days of Isaiah as well. Even as there are nominal Christians in our day and have been since the church began after Pentecost, remember again Simon Magus. Named the name, but he wasn't a true believer. He didn't, he didn't have a new heart. He hadn't been regenerated. He simply named the name. 
and his profession was false. And there's so much corruption in Zion, so much corruption in the church. It is not the visible church, if I can use that expression, I hope you understand what I mean, as I've already indicated, all those that are members of churches, that attend churches, that consider themselves part of the church, and yet they are not all part of the true church. There's wheat and tares together, the scriptures tell us, over and again. It's not the visible church like unto Israel in the days of Isaiah. Is not the remnant like unto the true believers that make up the true church. Do we not have much to sorrow over with regard to the visible church today? And we have had for decades and beyond. Ought we not to sigh and to cry over all the abominations that are done in the midst thereof? I mean in the midst of the church, just like in Ezekiel 9, you remember that vision with the writer with the inkhorn going around and what was he told to do? He was told to make a mark on the foreheads of those that sigh and cry for all the abominations that were done in Israel. Those were the ones that received a mark on the forehead. That meant they were the remnant. That meant they were God's true people because they sighed and cried and thus they were given a mark on their forehead. We have to ask ourselves, would the man with the inkhorn set a mark upon our foreheads? Do we sigh and cry over the abominations that are done in our midst? I know there are numberless things done in this country that are terrible, horrific, awful, that are abominations. I'm talking right now about the things that are done in the name of Christ in this country, the things that are done in the make-believe church. Do we sigh and cry over those things? Don't we long for the day when the Lord will come and, and clean house like Jesus did the temple? There's a remnant within a remnant. In a sense, the church professing Christian church is a remnant within the land, but that's wheat and tares. The wheat, the wheat is the remnant within a remnant. In Genesis 15, 16, the promise given to Abraham, God told Abraham, you remember we heard it in class recently, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. And when it is full, then God is going to bring his people and they're going to displace the Amorite. They're going to sweep those people out of that land. The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. Is it possible that the iniquity of this nation is not yet full? But there's a time coming when God is going to sweep this people off of the face of this land. In Leviticus 18, I'm not going to turn there, but it's a statement of God basically telling his people how that he turned the 
Amorites, the Canaanites, out of the land when their iniquity was full. He tickled their throat, it says. He tickled their throat. He tickled the throat of the land, I should say, and it vomited them out of the land. It was the time, it was the day for their being displaced, cast out. And when it was time, God didn't wait another second longer. He tickled their throat, or the throat of the land, and it vomited that people out of the land. And he's talking to Israel in this way. That there may come a day when you will be cast out. There will come a day when you will be cast out. There will come a day when I will tickle the throat of this land and it will cast you out to Babylon or other places of captivity. It will vomit you out. One writer called this first chapter in these verses one through nine is the great arraignment. The great arraignment. The message is from God. He is the prosecutor of the case. The great arraignment about this behavior and so on. And I just can't help but ask myself and ask us to ask ourselves how long with those under the altar. How long, Lord? How long are you going to put up with this land? How long are you going to put up with these false churches that call themselves churches with their prosperity gospel, with their wickedness? The Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. I just read about a few days ago and it's of a local note not local pride, local note that they have just employed two new pastors for this formerly Southern Baptist Church in Washington. The Southern Baptist uh, Convention didn't want them anymore about four years ago, but they just hired these two to be co-pastors of this church, two women. Two women from Greenville. It's everywhere. The church, the church is not defending the name of Jesus Christ. They're taking it in vain. The church is not doing what God has determined that they should do. They're not sighing and crying. They're not behaving as they ought. You remember, just to give an illustration, in 2 Kings 16, perhaps you remember about King Ahaz going to Damascus and seeing an altar there. This is what's happened to the churches of this land. One professor in seminary said that he understood that a lot of men came back from World War II from Europe and seeing all those beautiful cathedrals and all the beautiful altars they had. And he suggested that that was at least one of the reasons why after World War II there began to appear altars in our Protestant churches in this land. But this is what happened with King Ahaz. This, of course, King Ahaz, we read at the beginning of this book, was one of the kings under which Isaiah was prophesying. 
He went to Damascus to meet the king of Assyria and he saw this altar and he wanted one like it. And so he sent the plans for it, the design back to his people and they made him an altar just like that after the pattern of this king of Assyria's altar. And he put it on, he put it, he put it, he put it in the brazen altar we read which was before Jehovah, he brought from the forefront of the house of God. He brought it from the forefront of the house from between his altar and the house of Jehovah and put it on the north side of the altar. The altar of God, the altar that God had commanded, and he moved it out of the way and put this heathen altar in its place. That's a picture of what's going on in so many of the churches. They've displaced God. They've displaced his commands. They've displaced his word. They've displaced his son. They have set it aside. We read the instructions about how the altar was to be made and set in place and so on in Exodus 40, the end of that book. We read these words, Thou shalt set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And we read what Moses did. He set the altar of burnt offering at the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, right the way God told him to do it. And offered upon it the burnt offering and the meal offering as Jehovah commanded Moses. Then, the, listen, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of Jehovah Fill the tabernacle. Is that not what we would like to see? The glory of God filling his house. Isaiah, I believe, is sent here to God's chosen people, Israel. That temporal nation, Israel, his chosen people nonetheless, to write Ichabod on its doors. Ichabod, the glory is departed from Israel. I have to ask the question, has the glory departed from this nation? Has the glory departed from these churches? I remember someone talking about so many churches have so many programs to keep people active and busy, <laughs> like building programs. I remember one man telling me years ago, you have to have a building program to give the people something to do. And I fear that the churches, they have their building programs, they have their bus ministries, they have their evangelism programs, they have their youth programs and all these programs. I wonder how many of them, how many of those churches has the Spirit of God left? And they don't even know it. I ask, may we be brought, may we be brought by God to sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done across our land. Let us pray. <coughs> Oh, Lord our God, 
Father, we, <laughs> we cry with cry with John, come Lord Jesus. Even so. Come. Amen. The benediction. If you'd stand, it's from Revelation 22 as well. And there shall be no curse anymore, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be therein, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Amen.